If you're a fan of urban legends, you might know the story of the babysitter and the man upstairs. This creepy tale tells the story of a teenage girl who is babysitting several children when she gets a call from an unidentified stalker telling her to check on the kids. Even if you haven't heard of this urban legend, it may sound familiar. After all, this trope is the backbone of many notable horror films. But this cliche scenario exists for a reason. There are dozens of cases of babysitters who vanished or met their demise at the hands of an unknown assailant. Margaret Fox. Margaret Ellen Fox was born on February 22nd, 1960 in Burlington, New Jersey. A kind-hearted and intelligent young girl, at the time of her passing in 1974, she was taking piano lessons and had recently graduated from St. Paul's Grammar School. She was also known for her love of horses and her sensible nature. Despite being the only girl of five children, she was not rambunctious or loud like her brothers, but instead was quiet and reserved. Her disappearance in the mid-1970s not only left her family brokenhearted, but also left an unhealed wound on the community of Burlington. On the morning of June 24th, 1974, Margaret got ready to catch the bus along to Mount Holly, where she would meet a man calling himself John Marshall, who was looking for a new babysitter. The week prior, Margaret and her cousin had placed an ad in the local paper, offering their services as babysitters. John Marshall had reportedly contacted the cousin first, but as she was younger than Margaret, her mother said no, as she did not want her to travel so far alone. So Marshall then called Margaret, whose father agreed she could go. He had even spoken over the phone to the man calling himself John Marshall at least once. At around 8.40 AM, Margaret got onto the bus to get to Mount Holly. Her brother watched her board after escorting her to the bus station. This would be the last confirmed sighting of Margaret Fox. Marshall had initially responded to the advertisement on June 19th and had attempted to set up several meetings with Margaret, all of which he had canceled, despite saying that he needed a babysitter to start June 21st. He claimed to have needed a babysitter for his five-year-old son five days a week and claimed he would pay Margaret $40 a week for her services. He added that on June 24th, he or his wife would meet the teenager at the bus stop in his red Volkswagen. The plan was that Margaret would call her parents when she arrived at Marshall's home to let them know she was okay. However, the 14-year-old never called. Her parents grew all the more concerned when she did not arrive home that afternoon as they'd agreed. Panicked, Margaret's mother searched for the telephone number that she'd been given by Marshall. It led to a public phone booth outside of a local supermarket in Lumberton. Even more frenzied, the mother of five then began to call around different John Marshalls in the area, all of whom denied being the one her daughter had spoken with. 
Meanwhile, Margaret's father, David, went to Mount Holly to search for his missing child. However, neither parent had any luck, and just after midnight, they filed a missing persons report. Police immediately launched an investigation into the vanishing of 14-year-old Margaret Fox. Witnesses in Mount Holly reported seeing a young girl matching the teenager's description talking to a man in a red car on the corner of Mill Street and High Street. However, the owner of the red car was tracked down and provided a solid alibi. Authorities believe that Margaret mistook this driver for John Marshall. Another suspect in the area was a local sex offender who also drove a red Volkswagen. However, once again, this man was ruled out due to having a watertight alibi. One peculiar man who was looked into was a John or Jack Marshall who worked at the Lumberton supermarket as a manager. There is not much information available about him, but ultimately, this man was ruled out due to the fact he was working at the time the 14-year-old went missing, and he passed a polygraph test. The science of so-called lie detector tests was a lot more flimsy back then even than it is today, but despite this, polygraph tests were often seen as definitive proof about whether or not someone was lying. Online sleuths have speculated that perhaps the unidentified abductor saw the manager's name, perhaps on his office door, and used it when contacting the girls to avoid being identified. In the hours following Margaret's disappearance, the police began to record calls going to and from the Fox residence. One call in particular was of interest to authorities. A man called the home and spoke with Margaret's mother, demanding $10,000, the modern day equivalent of around 53,000, in exchange for her daughter's safe return. He stated, quote, $10,000 might be a lot of bread, but your daughter's life is the buttered topping. The day after this ransom call, a letter arrived reciting the same words of the caller. It instructed Margaret's parents to put the money in a box with blue wrapping and claimed that Margaret is all right. We only tore her blouse and broke her glasses. These details had already been made public, so they were not deemed to be particularly significant by authorities. While latent prints were found on the letter, they did not match any prints on file with the Burlington County Jail, Prosecutor's Office, or the Mount Holly Police Department. Frustratingly, the prints have since been lost. After receiving the note, the Fox family withdrew the money the ransomers demanded. However, they had no instructions on how to deliver the cash. On June 30th, a second letter arrived, saying, among other things, quote, $10,000 was a lot of bread, but your daughter's life was the butter topping. It was also reportedly made to look like it was from the Symbionese Liberation Army, a small-scale terrorist group that was frequently in the news at the time. After this letter, communications stopped. In 1976, a suspect in Margaret's case admitted to abducting her, but this confession was later proven to be false. In 1992, a body found in the Atlantic Highlands area in Monmouth County was thought to be that of the missing teenagers. However, there were no dental records available to make a match. Theories in the 14-year-old's case are few and far between. 
Many have speculated that perhaps the ransom caller was carrying out a cruel joke, and that's why they did not provide instructions on where to deliver the money to. Others have suggested that perhaps the caller had every intention of making an exchange, but Margaret was accidentally killed, and so the caller changed their plan. Both the caller and John Marshall remain unidentified. Several Jane Doe's have been ruled out as being Margaret. The exclusions are as follows. The Will County Jane Doe, found in Illinois in April of 1981, the Knox County Jane Doe, found in Tennessee in June of 1987, the Fairfax Jane Doe of Virginia, December 1993, and the Newport News Jane Doe, also of Virginia, in June of 2014. Margaret's vanishing has not faded from the minds of the community or law enforcement. Burlington City Police Department and the FBI are both making renewed efforts to try and solve the case. In 2019, they released a cleaned up version of the audio from the ransom call to the public in an effort to try and identify the caller. I have the audio excerpt of the ransom here and we'll play it for you now. $10,000 might be a lot of bread, but your daughter's life is the butter topic. Who is it? A $25,000 reward is available for anyone with information that will help lead authorities to an arrest in this case. So far, no arrests have been made, but law enforcement is hopeful that someone will come forward in the near future. It is needless to say, if you recognize the voice from that short audio excerpt, please contact the FBI on 973 792 3000. As it stands, the case of Margaret Ellen Fox remains unsolved. Evelyn Hartley. Evelyn Grace Hartley was born on November 21st, 1937, to Richard Hartley, a university professor, and his wife, Ethel. The couple lived with their four children in La Crosse County, Wisconsin and Richard worked at La Crosse State College, known today as the University of Wisconsin La Crosse. By all accounts, Evelyn, who sometimes went by Evie, was known as a smart and capable girl. She was a straight A student who was involved in many school activities, and she also played the piano and sang in the local choir at her church. She had no steady boyfriend and was in fact rather shy around others, it appeared that Evelyn had a bright future ahead of her, but tragically, she never got to experience it. On October 24th of 1953, Evelyn was hired by her father's colleague, Vigo Rasmussen, to care for his 20-month-old daughter while he, his wife, and his seven-year-old daughter attended the town's homecoming game. Normally, a classmate of Evelyn's named Janice would babysit for the Rasmussens, but on this occasion, she too was going to the game. Reluctantly, because she didn't really fancy babysitting that night, Evelyn agreed. She took her school books with her so she could study while the baby slept. That evening, Richard Hartley attempted to collect his daughter while she babysat, but failed. He called the Rasmussens' home phone several times, but there was no answer. Concerned, he drove over to the Rasmussens' home at 2400 block of Holscher Drive at around 9.20 p.m. When he arrived at the door, he received no answer. 
The doors were locked and the lights and the radio were on, and upon peering through the window, he saw the living room furniture had been moved around and Evelyn's school books could be seen scattered on the floor. Also lying on the carpet was a pair of broken glasses and a single shoe. Both, he knew, belonged to his daughter. At the back of the house, Richard found an open window leading into the basement. The screen was propped up against the wall outside of it, and there was a short stepladder, which belonged to the Rasmussens, positioned by the open window. Footprints were later found in various areas of the house by law enforcement. Inside, Richard found no sign of his daughter. He did, however, find her other shoe at the top of the basement stairs. He also saw that the Rasmussen's youngest daughter was fast asleep, unharmed in her crib. There was blood found inside the house and in the back garden, which contained a pool of blood around 18 inches across. A bloody handprint was located about 100 feet away on a nearby house and garage. Authorities theorized that the abductor had carried Evelyn through the back garden, stopped to rest, and then continued on. When law enforcement arrived on the scene, they sprung into action. Police dogs picked up the 15-year-old scent, which ended at Cooley Drive, two blocks away, leading investigators to believe that Evelyn had been bundled into a car and driven away. Upon speaking with neighbors, the police found out that a car had been repeatedly driving around the area and that a scream had been heard at around 7.15 p.m., although the noise had been disregarded as just children playing. Two days after Evelyn's disappearance, a local man named Ed Hoffer, whose identity was kept from the public for several decades, came forward and told authorities that he'd almost been hit by a two-ton green 1941 Buick, which had been speeding westward at around 7.15 p.m. He claimed to have seen two men in the car, one of whom was in the back seat with a young girl. The search that occurred in the days following the 15-year-old's vanishing was one of the biggest the county had ever seen. 1,000 members of the local community, including law enforcement, the National Guards, Boy Scouts, and university staff and students, helped to search for the missing girl. It wasn't long before the Air Force and the Civil Air Patrol were also put to good use. A vehicle inspection program was soon put underway, with the intent of searching every vehicle in the county. Gas station attendants were asked to check for bloodstains in cars, and recent graves were reopened to determine if Evelyn's remains were placed with a recent burial. In the first year following her disappearance, reportedly 3,500 people were questioned. Yet, despite the incredible efforts of authorities and the local community, Evelyn's fate remained elusive. Not long after the vanishing, a pair of underwear and a bra, possibly belonging to Evelyn, were found near an underpass on Highway 14, two miles south of La Crosse. Both garments were in Evelyn's size, and both were bloodstained, with the blood type matching that of the 15-year-old. Along that same stretch of highway, authorities also recovered a pair of bloody size 11 trainers by the brand Goodrich. The soles had a pattern on them, resembling what was found near to where Evelyn was last seen. Investigators believed that the abductor had worn them. Inside, they found a single human hair, possibly from an African-American. Authorities spoke with the manufacturers and found out that this style of shoe 
named the Hood Mogul, was sold in Wisconsin, Iowa, Michigan, Minnesota, and Illinois. The wear pattern on them suggested that the owner worked with machinery and frequently operated a Whizzer motorbike. It's also noted that although the area had been previously searched, the shoes were not recovered before. It is possible the shoes were dumped there afterwards as a red herring, although this can't be said with any certainty. Also found within 800 feet of the shoes was a well-worn size 36 blue denim jacket with metallic buttons. The garment sported bloodstains on the front, back, and sleeves. It had base metal paint flecks on it and had been cut off at the bottom and roughly re-hemmed using white thread. One of its four buttons was missing. A worn mark ran the entire width of the jacket beneath the armpits, possibly from a safety harness. Fibers resembling those used in scrubbing brushes were located in the left-hand pocket. While the blood type on the shoes could not be determined, the blood type on the jacket matched Evelyn's. Blood smears at the house appeared to be made by a fabric with the same characteristics as denim, leading investigators to believe that this jacket could have been worn by the culprit, although some believe the jacket is too small a size to match someone who wore size 11 shoes. It's been theorized that the jacket belonged to a steeplejack, which could explain the worn marks that looked as if a harness had been used. Although both the jacket and the shoes were displayed to over 10,000 people in different areas of the county, nobody recognized them or came forward with information. Eventually, Lacrosse County created a new position for a criminal investigator and hired A.M. Josephson, a former army criminologist who specialized in using polygraphs. His job was to work solely on Evelyn's case. In May of 1954, he began to conduct mass polygraph tests on LA Cross High School boys in an attempt to find out more about the 15-year-old's private life, all in the aim of finding her current whereabouts. The plan was for 1,750 students to be tested, but it was such a controversial task that it ended after just 300 boys were interviewed. The strongest lead came in 2004, when a man named Mel Williams came forward with a tape recording of several men discussing the abduction and subsequent slaying of a 15-year-old Evelyn Hartley. Mel was a tavern owner in Lafarge, Wisconsin, and somewhere between 1968 and 1969, he recorded a conversation he had with a man named Clyde Peterson. When asked why he wanted to interview Peterson, Williams said he was likable, funny, and quite a character. While the interview started with just Peterson, the pair was soon joined by a man named Whitey Barkley, who was known to be a big mouth. Upon his arrival, Barkley encouraged Peterson to, quote, tell him about that Hartley girl you kidnapped, and Peterson reportedly obliged. He admitted that he and another man named Jack Goldhair who apparently knew Evelyn and knew she was babysitting for the Rasmussens that night, abducted the 15-year-old and ultimately shot her on a friend's farm. Galtair had taken his own life on Christmas Day of 1967. He was 39 at the time and died from a gunshot wound. Peterson later died in 1974, aged 53, of a heart attack. By the time Mel Williams came forward with the tapes, the only surviving member of the group outside of himself was Barkley, 
who was now suffering from dementia, leaving police with nowhere to go. An old newspaper clipping from the 1950s shows, however, that Evelyn wasn't Galtier's first time dabbling with crime. When he was just 24 years old, he was charged with contributing to the delinquency of a girl under the age of 16 when he took her to a tavern to drink. For a short time, infamous serial killer Ed Gein was considered a suspect in Evelyn's disappearance as he was visiting relatives nearby at the time of her vanishing. However, he has since been cleared of involvement. Evelyn's parents moved to Portland, Oregon in the 1970s. They both later passed away without receiving any answers in their daughter's case. If you have any information about the fate of Evelyn Hartley, please contact the La Crosse Police Department at 608-785-5962. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and suggestions, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. You can also support us on Patreon to access a whole host of behind the scenes content and win the opportunity to have your hometown featured in an upcoming cold case video. Thank you for watching, stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.